0: Hey, well, I'm going uh, to exercise some uh, mad interim preacher authority right now and uh, let you know that the Tobys are celebrating their 50th anniversary today. So, so do something nice for them today. That's a long time. God, God bless you for you and his faithfulness, your faithfulness as well. So, um, let's pray, and then we'll take a look at another long passage, um, Genesis chapter 39. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have come to be um, shown who you are, and we're aware that that will also show us who we are and where we live, and what you're doing in us and around us and in the heavens and the earth. But these things only happen by your Spirit. Your Word and your Spirit bring life and light, hope and strength. And so we pray that you would show us who you are, who we are, what this place is, and how we should live. In Jesus' name, amen. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, "'Lie with me.' But he refused and said to his master's wife, "'Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house.' And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept anything back for me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her and to be with her. But one day... When he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife said to him, this is why, this is the way your servant has treated me, his anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. Amen. Well, last week, the one thing you were supposed to get was that you should not try to understand God's uh, providence, but you should spend all your heart and all your mind and all your energy emotionally trying to understand his promise, because that's the thing that we're given. Okay? Well, here's today's one and only thing you need to get, and then you can write it down and you can leave. Watch the game if you want. The promise doesn't, hear this, the promise doesn't keep us from suffering, but suffering cannot keep the promise from us. The promise does not keep us from suffering, but suffering cannot keep the promise from us. That's the story that Joseph learns all throughout and certainly in this passage. And we're going to learn that in the world that Joseph has left and gone into, um, the promise is a little absurd. It's also uh, tenaciously enduring. It isolates us and it forms us before it's fulfilled. So you can write those down, and we're going to hopefully go through them again. I'll try to remember um, to let you know when I move on. But it's a little absurd, it's enduring. It's isolating, and it forms us before it's fulfilled. So what I want us to see about the absurdity of Joseph's circumstance is that it has essentially been sent into a world that is completely opposite from the promise that he was given. Joseph is given a promise, and that promise is rejected by his brothers. He's supposed to have family glory. He's his father's favorite um, he's got the whole future ahead of Him. The stars in the sky um, are going to go um, and bow down before Him. These are all things from a chapter, two chapters ago, actually, um, in Genesis chapter 38. He was given all these great promises. We saw that they're essentially um, images of the promise of, of the gospel, of the resurrection. Now, Joseph has all these promises, and it doesn't go very well for him. He gets beat up by his brothers, and then he gets thrown into a pit. But then something very significant happens in the story of Genesis. Uh, one of the, the patriarchal leaders, or one from that clan, um, he leaves the promised land. And that is always um, a preliminary indication that trouble is going to happen. In fact, the, once. Um, Isaac was told not by God himself in a famine, don't leave the promised land, I'm going to take care of you. Um, Jacob, Joseph's father, had to leave the promised land because he cheated his brother and his brother was going to kill him. So in disobedience, he ran to save his life. And now um, here, Joseph is sent out of the promised land. You're sent out of the promised land, there's an implication that the promise itself is going to be under stress. It's going to be extended. The, the promise itself is in a fashion tied to place. Now, um, without getting too much into the biblical theology of the whole course of Scripture, that, that place is ultimately a picture of the whole heavens and earth. This whole place that we're in is supposed to be a place of promise. It's supposed to be a place where where, uh, the children of God enjoy the blessings and the riches and the kindness of God. Well, how do we know that? There's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons we know it is that's the way the whole Bible starts. But now that the place is broken, living outside of the way the world is really supposed to be is like living outside the promise And it's a little absurd to live as if the world is tamed, as if everything's going to be okay, as if you're loved in a world that is as broken as our friend um, spoke of in his prayers. That's the absurdity of the promise. And um, you can see, if you don't like the word absurd, um, you know, Paul called it foolish, so maybe just translate foolish for that. You know, one of the writers of the New Testament said the gospel is foolishness. To the, to the Greek. So the son of the promise has left the promised land. He's, listen to this, listen to how everything is a little bit ridiculous. Uh, he has been subjected to his brothers. He was promised by a dream that they would be subjected to him. He's now subjected to the um, king of Egypt, He was told that the stars and the heavens themselves, the nations, um, would be subjected to him. These people called Midianites, Ishmaelites, they take him captive, and then they sell him to an Egyptian. So if you're Joseph and you haven't read the book of Genesis because Joseph never read the book of Genesis, he lived this story, he didn't read it. If you're there you don't understand anything except that you were given a promise that is absolutely and completely inverted and ridiculous in the world that you're in. He has gone from the promise of being a king. In our passage, the passage before he went to become a prisoner, now he's a slave. Then in our passage he becomes a convict. So think about the... uh, social degradation of the child of the promise. If there's, there's only one thing that's lower than being a slave, and we'll talk about the nature of his slavery in a minute and why it maybe wasn't as good as it sounds, but the only thing lower than that is being a prisoner. They're the only people that have less freedom than slaves. Joseph's station, his promise, his destiny does not fit the world the way it is. This is a challenge because in an affluent community like this one, may I say for the next 10 months, like ours, the world seems to be going for many of us pretty well. But when we think of the magnitude of the promise the extent of the hope that we have, the way the world really ought to be, we need to come to terms with the fact that the things that we believe, the promises that we hold, are are fundamentally, uh, have an element of ridiculousness in the world that we live in. And Joseph is learning that in extreme measure. Nothing that he was promised has yet come true. This journey from the pit to his brothers reconciling with him takes probably 14 years. What is he, in year one or two here? So that's one thing we need to understand, and we're going to need to see it through uh, in our sense, in our setting. Not everyone in the world, certainly, and not everyone in America, but and not everyone here, but most of us here need to see that the promise is a little ridiculous. We have to see that through our affluence, which we'll talk about, you know, in a moment. Because it's not like the promise isn't here. The first thing is it's, it's completely inverted, um, absurd or upside down or backwards. The second, though, that we see in Joseph's story, remember uh, suffering. This is what we want you to learn. Suffering, um, are, the promise doesn't keep us from suffering. But suffering can't keep the promise from us. And so we can see that it's enduring. We read these beautiful words. Um, The Lord was with Joseph. Take a look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, you would imagine, at least I would, if I hadn't read the Scriptures and lived a life trying to avoid this very reality, you would imagine that if God is with us, um, we would prosper in the fullest sense. But but God is with Joseph, which means some things. God was with Joseph when his brothers beat him up. God was with Joseph when he was in the pit. This is from the last story that we read. God was with Joseph when he was bound and straggled behind the, the, the Midianites, Ishmaelites that, that sold him. God was with him when he was bought by Potiphar. God is with you in cancer, in the disruption of your marriage, in the worrying that you have for your children, in the loss of your job. God's promise endures because God's presence endures with us. Somehow, favor still follows us into a world that's broken. Because the promise endures. Suffering cannot overcome the promise because God is with us in the midst of it. God's favor is present. And what we start to see is this uh, partial, very imperfect expression of the ultimate promise that God not only gave to Joseph, but to his great-grandfather, to Abraham. Joseph is going to bless the whole world. Joseph is now blessing Potiphar's house. If you're not familiar with Scripture, that's okay. I had only read 20% of the Bible when I went to seminary, okay? But I don't want you to worry. I'm almost done with it now. (laughs) But if you're exploring Christianity, well, it, it starts at the very start, but one of the key passages when God promises a man named Abraham that he was going to bless the nations through his offspring, and ultimately that offspring was Jesus the savior of the world who we worship and cherish and adore and hopefully obey but here the picture of that is joseph and joseph in these little ways he he rises to the top you know he becomes the like the best slave the highest slave and then he becomes the highest prisoner you know which sounds great you're like man joseph is killing it man he's awesome but he's still a slave and he's still a prisoner so you go ahead and trade your job for Joseph's mojo if you want, but I think we need to understand that it's just a, a a peak. It's like a prophetic type, and it's a picture of what the enduring promise should mean to us in a world the way it is. That's that, that the promise, the goodness, the riches, the comforts, the joys, the pleasantries that we have here whatever success God grants us can never be enough listen to me carefully it should be enough for you to be generous and content okay but it should never be enough for you to think that God has not always wanted something more and richer and fuller for you that you will never get till you see him in glory you could eat the whole world this afternoon and you would wake up in the morning hungry. The promise endures, but it's always incomplete. He's gone from son to slave to convict. And no matter what kind of success he has along the way, he is not living the fullness of of the dream yet. Joseph found favor in the eye uh, his eyes that is um, Potiphar's, and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted him to his care everything he owned. I love that phrase. He didn't worry about anything except what he was going to eat. That's stewardship. Joseph is a picture of the child of the promise as we're seeing him. And so whatever you have, you've been given. Whatever dominion you have, whatever domain you exercise, as small as your account is or as modest as your home is or um, you know how limited your, cube, your uh, cube is at work, you have that much dominion. And none of it's yours. The promise endures, but it's isolating. Take a look at Joseph's isolation. And this is actually something I think increasingly we'll need to learn um, as Christians in America. When I first came to Christ, the Time Magazine, I think, or Newsweek talked about the year of the evangelical. Like, we were just, like, owning it, man. We just, like, this, boom, we had it. Well, you know what? Last year was also the year of the evangelical in a lot of ways that we're not happy about. Christianity has um, an isolating influence when it's lived faithfully. The first time Joseph is isolated is back in the last chapter when he was very first mentioned. He's distinguished from his brothers who hate him. So the children of the promise are isolated. Then he's abused by his brothers. Then he's thrown into the pit. Then he is uh, sold to the Midianites. Then he is, uh, to use the language of uh, the 21st century, then he's othered by by Mrs. Potiphar, or maybe she wants to be called Miss Potiphar. I don't know, but he's othered. The guy, the foreigner... The person that's different and his social status that's different and an ethnicity that's different, he's different than us and he came here to laugh at us and to mock us. And then he's eventually he's going to be forgotten in prison, which was a bummer after finally, well, we'll go into that story, but that seems to me to be the worst part of his life right there. The guy's, well, we'll get ahead, but it's not going well for Joseph by that time. And then get this, when his brothers come back to him, and I'm covering 15 years, they at first they don't recognize him. So, so what do we learn about living in this way? Well, um, you're not home. You can't really fully, totally belong in this place. Now that's hard for us um, over the last 50 or 75 years to come to terms with, we have a a sense of proprietary um, relationship with the cities, the country, the culture that we live in. And um, that's becoming increasingly apparent that we don't have that grip anymore. I personally think it provides a a wonderful opportunity for us to learn lessons about our faith. You know, this place was never a home home. For us, and it was never supposed to be a home for us. It was never going to be that way. My my great grandmother, when she was eighteen, um, she left Ireland alone, sailed all the way across South America, and landed in San Francisco. To start a life now, do you realize one? How bad does Ireland have to be before that sounds like a good idea? Well, it was pretty bad. But here, here's the punchline. She moved from San Francisco with her five kids up to Butte. They were gonna husband's going to be a minor up there, and they were in Utah. And she, <laughs> this has become our family creed. She's in Utah, and she told her daughters that when they got somewhere, I guess Salt Lake. I don't know where they were. Um, they got there she told her daughters to be uh, around all the people there to be civil but strange. I can't remember it, but I have looked it up and translated that into Latin. I want it on a crest. Civil but strange. And she was like, hey, we don't belong here. You know, we I, I still think I belong in Ireland. We certainly don't belong in Utah. And pretty soon we're not going to belong in Montana. So for the church, maybe that should be the the creed, the motto for all saints, civil but strange. You know, we're, we're, we're here, but we're, we're not here. But let me tell you how else it's isolating, and this will drill down a little bit on this point. We've, of course, um, seen that it's a little, um, little absurd, we've called it, and that it's enduring. But this isolation creates a tension, in fact, actually, the enduring promise and the isolation create a tension for our friend Joseph because it's kind of working for him. I mean, in the landscape of uh, the socioeconomic strata of the ancient world, it really wasn't totally bad to be the slave who was in charge of all the other slaves. You know, it was, it was better than... You know, you're basically a nobleman or a priest or um, you could be a merchant perhaps. Uh, Potiphar might have been a eunuch because he worked for the king. That might explain some of this dynamic. But the fact of the matter is there were reasons for Joseph to say to himself, like there is for everyone in this room, I got it pretty good here. Maybe I can belong here. I'm blessed But I'm isolated. And then a different kind of pressure comes. Still under this isolation banner that I want us to think about. She wants him to belong. Potiphar's wife is giving him an opportunity to belong into the culture and the structure, the ethos. She's saying, hey, satisfy yourself here and satisfy me then you'll be home at home in a fascinating way you need you need to see and i need to see that that she is exactly like his brothers she sees his allure she sees his promise she's bold like her brothers come to bed with me her her bold that's her brothers hated his brothers hated him her boldness increases. She spoke to him day after day. Their anger and hatred increased. Then finally she gets aggressive. She rips her robe off. Time out. I told you to watch the robes, right? Last week I said watch the robes. He was favored with a robe and now his second robe gets ripped off. This is how Hebrew stories propel themselves along. He's going to have another robe. We'll see in just a Well, maybe not a little while, but in a while. What I want us to understand, what I want us to see, is that being isolated makes us lonely, makes us feel out of space, and then makes us want to belong. And although the allure of sexual uh, intimacy is clearly part of this temptation, what's really at the root of it is Joseph's got to decide if this is where he belongs. So that means at the root of all your affluence and all the resources you have and all the opportunities you have or all the opportunities you want if you don't have them, at the root of all those, in that isolation, there's, a, there's moments time and time again when, when as it were, uh, Potiphar's wife is inviting you to make yourself at home here. We're going to talk about how Joseph got out of that in a little bit, but I want us to see that's the challenge of this omnipresent promise that's a little bit ridiculous, that endures with us, but it isolates us, and then there's the tension that we live in by faith, because what God's going to do with that tension is what He does with all of the struggles in our life. He's going to form us before He fulfills His purpose for us. God's purpose for you in this age is formative. Then He'll fulfill, but He's shaping you, and He's giving you assurance in the beginning and the end of this passage The Lord was with Joseph. That's in verse 2. Go to verse 21. Um, While Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. Jesus said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Hebrews, quoting the Old Testament, says, I will never leave you or forsake you. God is going to make you and me sit in a world That he knows we could eat top to bottom and wake up hungry, that will never be enough for us, even though it's filled with many, many of his kindnesses that we are going to enjoy even today, that doesn't quite work, that can't be tweaked. The algorithm cannot be adjusted. And he forms us with it. How does that formation work? Well, this is an answer to Shelton's question at dinner last Sunday. He said um, he said great sermon Mike. Okay, actually he said good sermon Mike, but but I heard great sermon Mike. <clears throat> uh, he might have said decent sermon. I don't know, but the point is his next question was but we can't figure out God's providence, but but we're we're supposed to find out what he's doing, right? We're supposed to look for what he's doing and of course, I, I said, yeah. I mean, I, I was at his house, and he just fed me dinner. So, but I also believe, I also believe that that's what you're supposed to do. And here's how you can do that. Um, remember, you're not going to figure it out, but you can, you can watch. faith Functioning faith that forms us. Those three F's are meant to help you remember. Functioning faith that forms us, right? Um, first of all, it sees the good that God has done. It watches and marks. It is remarkable to me how acute and vivid and lasting our memories of discouragement and God's supposed failures are. We never forget those. I have a catalog of those. But, but what I have to think about remembering, and, and I know this isn't everyone's story, but it's my story, um, I have, for these last 59 years, been fed and clothed every day. I have been just uh, moderately overweight my whole life because I've had more than I needed to eat. I've had friends and been able to travel. Watch and see these, these enduring fulfillments, these um, pictures of the promise, these little sparkling gems you can find and, and record and remember those. That's what Joseph does. He's like, Well, how what? He's like, looks at Potiphar's wife. He's like, Well, what are you talking about? Look at everything my God has done for me in our age, in the spirit of our age, especially. He might say, Well, yeah, now that I think about it, I am a slave and I wasn't a ditch and my brothers beat me up and stripped me naked. Well, that's not what he does. The charter of verses 8 through 10, where he talks about that is that um, he recognized that God has been good. When you do that, when you're tempted, this is one of the ways you can learn what God's doing. When you're tempted, especially in temptations that you give into uh, more regularly than others, think about what the nature of that temptation is and then think about what its fulfillment is Is actually doing for you? What box is it checking? Like, for example, if you uh, spend too much money or you are acquisitional, okay, well, you might say, "Well, I get a new Keurig." You know, I love those things, and this one's better. Okay. By the way, don't feel bad if you have a Keurig. I'll come over. I'll use it. That's not my point. Okay. But what I am saying is, I don't know how that operates in you, so I am just making up an example. Well, well, you can say, "Well, I want coffee." Well, that's not the box that it checks. The box it checks is that you and I want the ability to satisfy our desires immediately. So then once I learn that, once I learn that, then I can say, well, what's God doing with this broken world around me? In that case, I would need to learn that I need to trust God while I'm hungry, figuratively or literally. See, you can, you can learn that. Once you take the assurance of faith, you let faith um, function while it forms you, you watch what God has done, you give thanks for it, and then you're ready to understand what He might be doing. You're ready to look for what box you're trying to check. There's something else, though. Understand, too. Faith understands how to see God's blessings. It understands why you're tempted. Um, it always, though, knows it's going to str- swim upstream. What I mean by that is uh, faith has always got a headwind to it. And that's one way to understand your living by faith. Not that faith is always hard. It, it, it's just that it's always... Um, against the context that you're in. I ride my bike in Burke Gilman Trail in Seattle, Washington. And, uh, you know, this is true. It's around Lake Washington. And, and I, don't, I go around and then I come back and there's a headwind both ways. I don't understand that. It might be that I'm just really tired both ways, you know. But it seems like I'm always in a headwind. And, and f- understand this, Joseph had two kinds of headwind, two kinds of upstream swimming, and you will too. One was his brothers hated him. The other was Mrs. Potiphar loved him. So that, it's this, think about, well, I don't think she loved him, but you, she wanted to be with him. One time, his brothers just had contempt for him. The other, he turned around on the lake to go back and Mrs. Potiphar wanted to embrace him because that's the way faith works in this in this broken, broken world. One more thing here I want us to, because this is really where it gets simple, and this is where we can answer Shelton's question. What is God doing? Well, that's often a mystery that you can only answer in retrospect. There's a very difficult season in my life that ended, went from 07 to the end of 11, Okay. And I can look back now in 2021 and see some things God was doing. During that time, I didn't really see them. So that, that happens. But here's what I do know in the moment. What do you do when you understand the promise, but you don't understand the providence? Well, it's pretty simple. You obey. Let's close in prayer. Now, let me, I'll elaborate on that a little bit, but but the fact is, Christianity, following Christ, is about that simple. You don't obey to, to earn God's favor. You obey because you know that God is good because he gave you his favor. And that's what Joseph says. After all of this, where does he land when he's debating with the woman who's tempting him? He's like, look, no, I can't do this. Your, your, your husband is honored me. He's put everything under my I control. I'm, I'm in a good station in life. This is about as good as it gets for slaves. And so he's acknowledging all this stuff, but then he says, I will not sin against God by disobeying. disobeying. So what, one thing I do know about what God's doing in his complex providence for me and for you, he's always teaching us, trying us, testing us, encouraging us, to do what he says. It's pretty simple, really. Now, when you don't do what he says, who takes care of that? This is a Sunday school question. The answer is what? That would be Jesus. Brad should have taught you that. He was here, he was here 19 years. By the way, I spoke with him for an hour on Friday. They're doing great. It was wonderful. Um, and I rebuked him for leaving on your behalf. But um, you need to obey. When you don't, Jesus will love you. But when you do, you'll start to find out some of the things God God is doing. Let me close with another story about uh, travelers. My family went to uh, in 2004. In we went to Scotland on sabbatical. And um, we had a great time. We saw a lot of castles. Castles all have... It's crazy. I didn't know this about medieval castles, but they, they all have a gift shop right at the last section. <laughs> it's nuts. And I, I thought I knew history. But so we were leaving somewhere. I can't remember one of 10 million castles we went to. And we had got my son something and realized after the castle, there's also like a place to get bad Scottish food. The... Um, we left it there, so we came, um, we realized we got to go get this thing because it's precious now. And uh, we pull into this driveway in Scotland up in the Highlands in this house with, you know, the yard was about this big. And I pull into the driveway, and the front door flies open. And this crazy Scott lady screaming at us, and I mean screaming at us, run straight at the car, yelling, we don't do that in Scotland! She just kept yelling it. I'm like, do what? What am I doing? Well, evidently, she was telling us, you don't turn around in someone else's driveway in Scotland. I said, well, we do in Canada. Canada. No, I didn't say that. but Well, I talked to my Scottish friends, and they said, yeah, we do. So what's that got to do with this? There are a lot of things that you do, a lot of impositions that the promise puts on God's people that we don't do here. You're different. This world isn't your home. It also gives you a lot of things to hope for and a lot of values that don't belong here until here is the way it was meant to be. That's just the where you live. That's what it means to be with an omnipresent promise. So you live in that space. You live in that promise. You live in that, in that um, absurd, enduring, isolating, formative promise. And when the world yells at you about, That's, we don't do that here. Maybe just take it on the chin, love them anyway, and say, yes, we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercies. I bless you and ask you, please, Lord Jesus, to help us to live in this place faithfully. Because you, you, Lord God, are faithfully with us in it. The promise, the promise doesn't keep us from suffering. But suffering cannot overcome the promise. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.